Our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel 8, 15 through 27. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken. But by no human hand, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is God's word. We are going to go into some uh, deep waters, so let's pray, shall we? Father, we are your children. We trust you. We want to hear what you think we need to. We will follow your counsel. We're asking you to give us what we need today to be ready for tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. Roy Rogers bought some new cowboy boots. And at the end of the day, he would store them on the front porch. At night, however, a mountain lion would come and chew on them. And one morning, Roy, who had had it, he got up early and he shot the cat. Dale Evans, his wife, later saw the cat when she came out and she asked, Pardon me, Roy, is that the cat who chewed your new shoes? Now, for many of you, you said, Was that funny? It's because that joke depends upon your having understood a song that was actually the first one million seller for RCA in 1941. It was a Glenn Miller song called the Chattanooga Choo Choo. This is kind of how prophecy works. It makes an unexpected connection between words from the past and a future event. And when the prophecy and the event intersect, it's like a light bulb goes off, and in some cases, we receive encouragement. So let's review, shall we? In chapter 2, we saw this image. Nebuchadnezzar saw it, Daniel interpreted it, and he wrote it down so that we could see it. 
And this empire of man is presented as a prophetic sequence. It starts with gold and then silver, then bronze, then iron, then iron and clay, and then a stone not made with hands. Now, there's a historical fit. For example, the gold is Babylon. The silver was the next world empire, Medo-Persia. The bronze is Greece. The iron is Rome. The stone not made with hands hasn't happened yet, but it will crush all the previous empires of men. That stone will become an everlasting kingdom. It hasn't happened yet. It's still future. The timing of the iron and clay toes that are in chapter 2 is unspecified, but a later vision that's in chapter 7 actually tells us that that is something yet future as well. So, so far, this vision, the clock is still ticking on it. It has been accurate for 2,600 years, but there are certain parts of it that haven't happened yet, including the return of Jesus. Chapter 7 covers the same 2,600 plus years, uh, same empires as chapter 2, but it uses a little bit different imagery. In chapter 7, you have a lion followed by a bear, followed by a leopard, followed by a dreadful beast, then the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And again, we can see the historical fit. The lion is Babylon, the bear is Medo-Persia, and the leopard is Greece. But then in chapter 7, we saw that we were given some additional information about the dreadful fourth beast. You remember how Daniel was freaked out by this? And he said, ah, what is this? And he was given information. A king, we'll call him the super horn, because he was this horn that rises above the others, will rise to prominence among the ten horns. And here's what we learned. This is a few weeks ago. This super horn will declare all-out war against God's people and he will prevail until the coming of the son of man who destroys his evil empire now the super horn and the coming of the son of man are yet future it hasn't happened yet but chapter 7 gives us additional insight into what to expect on the world scene as we near the return of Jesus last week we looked at the first half of chapter 8 which is another of these prophetic sequence prophecies. And chapter 8 harmonizes with chapter 2 and chapter 7, but it only considers the middle two empires, namely first Cyrus and Medo-Persia, followed by Greece, and only focuses on those two. So it's going to retrace some ground, but... Like chapter 7, it's going to give us some additional information. It's going to zero in for a closer look on something. And that detail concerns a particular king from the last days of Greece. He's an ego-driven ruler who's intent on dominating God's people. And this added detail really connects to what is a very dark chapter in the life of Israel. It's going to test God's people. Now, it's already happened. It's in the past. But for Daniel, this was 250 years yet future. It was something that was going to test God's people, but something from which they would ultimately be delivered. So, let's work our way through the vision. 
First, Daniel gets his orientation conference. Uh, it seems like after verse 14, he kind of came up for air for just a minute, but only briefly. He wants to understand what he's seen. Help, help me understand this. And he saw someone, so he's apparently back in the vision, and he sees someone who looks like a man, but he's actually a named angel. Not all the angels that appear in the Old Testament are named, but some are, and this one is Gabriel. Gabriel? The one who appeared to Mary? Yeah, same angel. <laughs> and he was instructed, presumably by God, he sees this man-like figure who is Gabriel, and a voice says to Gabriel, hey Gabe, help this guy get sorted out. Help him understand. And so Gabriel explains about this vision and helps him understand. And in this case, it's a vision that relates to the middle two empires. First, Cyrus and Medo-Persia, followed by Alexander the Great and Greece. So Daniel sees Gabriel, and what happens? He, he falls asleep. I, I don't know how that works exactly, but a, basically he's on sensory overload or something like that, and he just conks out. And Gabriel explains... I'm going to give you some in-depth analysis of a key moment called, and this is a key phrase, the final period of indignation, of the indignation, that it concludes the era of Greek prominence. So this is the kind of added insight that he's going to provide. He's going to help him understand something called the end of the, indig the indignation. So Gabriel's message is about something that is the indignation followed by divine deliverance. Now, what is indignation? What does that refer to? This is the Hebrew word za'am, and this word is used 22 times in the Old Testament, and in 20 of those 22 times, it describes God's response to those who defy him. I'm gonna show you a couple places. Uh, for example, uh, this is 612 B.C., or perhaps earlier, a prophecy from Nahum. Now, Nahum is kind of answers to Jonah. Remember, Jonah went to, to Nineveh, and they repented. They did good. They were on the clock with God, and God said, I'm going to judge you. And they, from the king on down, they humbled themselves, and uh, it didn't happen. God showed them grace and mercy. But 100 years later, Nahum says this to the same Nineveh. And this prophecy was fulfilled. Who can stand before his indignation? There's our word. There's za'am. Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. In this case, this is almost as if God is saying, enough. This has gone on long enough. His indignation was basically, there's, there's no more time. Uh, another instance of Za'am, this is to the Amorites. These are Israel's neighbors. This prophecy came from Ezekiel about 586 B.C., which was about the time that Jerusalem was leveled by Babylon. And the Ammonites, who were neighbors, were going, this is awesome. Nebuchadnezzar nailed them. We're good. I am so glad they got wiped off the map. 
And here is the prophecy from Ezekiel. It says, I will pour out my za'am, my indignation on you. I will blow on you with fire of my wrath and I will give you into the hand of brutal men skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be in the midst of the land. You will not be remembered for I, the Lord, have spoken. This was a moment in which the Ammonites had crossed the line that basically said there is no hope and they reaped the indignation of the Lord and they were destroyed. So Gabriel is going to help his man Daniel understand a moment that is an indignation moment. You can think of it as an enough moment. When, when God says enough, now I have to balance this with something that is true of God uh, I'm going to go to one of the watchman passages. So here's from Ezekiel 33:11, And it says this. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? See, God doesn't want to pour out his wrath on people. But when someone has demonstrated there is no hope, this person, no matter what happens, there's no turning. They've arrived at this place of indignation, God's indignation, where God pours out judgment. It's going to happen to our world. You know, it says that the Lord is going to descend with a shout. I wonder if what he's going to shout is enough. The indignation is the point at which God's hold is lifted and judgment falls. And in the case of this passage, the indignation of the Lord is going to fall on the goat. But first... Daniel is given kind of a recap of what he's already learned in this vision. Gabriel makes it explicit. The ram with two unbalanced horns, that's Medo-Persia. And as history developed, there are five points of confirmation from that passage. There are five ways in which we can say, yes, that's Medo-Persia. Number one, uh, the Susa, Susa was the capital. Number two, a bigger horn grew second. That's because Persia started out as the lower on the rung but rose to prominence and formed this thing called Medo-Persia. The expansion started in the west and the north. So uh, Medo-Persia expanded to the west, expanded to the north, then turned its attention south to conquer Babylon. There was no successful opposition for 10 years and Following the death of Cyrus, there was 200 years of peace and prosperity and self-proclaimed greatness. Look at the book of Esther, which comes from this season of time. Then Gabriel identifies the flying goat. He says, that's Greece. Which, by the way, think of this. At the time Daniel is receiving this message, the arrival of Greece 
to a place of being the world power is 250 years into the future. That would be, you know, I mean, think about someone predicting what we currently are facing 250 years ago. So that's what this was. And interestingly, what the ram did to others, the goat now does to him, to Medo-Persia. In other words, Medo-Persia was crushing all opposition. And now, Alexander the Great and Greece nail him. Uh, there's a number of historical confirmation points. Alexander the Great inherited from his father, Philip of Macedon, a united Greece. And he came from the West in an unstoppable whirlwind of world conquest. I mean, he was just like this flying goat that wasn't even touching the ground. Uh, it says that he was angry, and Alexander the Great was mad because Medo-Persia, during the time of Xerxes, had launched a campaign against Greece about 100 years earlier. And one of the things that was happening was, we are going to pay them back for what they did. Uh, Alexander the Great died at a young age. He was actually in Babylon at the time when he died. Maybe about 30, 32. He was coming to Babylon thinking, I need a good capital city for my empire so he's in Babylon and he died and upon his death his empire was divided up among his generals into four districts now there was some infighting and so on but eventually resolved itself in four horns or four empires then Gabriel starts to focus on the little horn which is the last of Alexander the Great's successors his name was Antiochus IV. Now, he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which I'll talk about that in a minute. But he was the eighth Seleucid ruler from Alexander. So here's Alexander the Great, and then the last, the eighth of the Seleucid, which is one of the four districts. He reigned in 175 to 164 B.C., it says he will control the beautiful land. That's a reference to Israel. He controlled Israel. Uh, it says he defeats hosts and stars. And at first, a lot of interpreters have gone all over the place trying to understand hosts and stars. It's really quite simple if you just take the words at their literal meaning. Uh, the word hosts just means armies, uh, gatherings of people. Here's a passage. This is Exodus 12:51. It says, and on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts, by their groupings. And so he's going to, Antiochus is going to defeat hosts, refers to armies. And it says, some are hosts of heaven, which simply means armies that represent God, which are Israel's armies. And then it says, some are star hosts. What's that? Uh, interestingly, the word star is in some context, the same word that's translated star is in some context used of false gods. For example, here's a passage from Amos. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sukkoth, your king, and Kenyun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. 
And literally, it's actually your star gods. In other words, your Israel, when they came out from Egypt, a little-known secret was they had tucked away a few of their false gods that they were worshiping as well. It came to fruition with the golden calf, but here Amos is saying, you, you weren't wholly devoted to the Lord even then. You had your star gods. So when he says you are going to, or this person is going to fight the hosts of heaven, he refers to the armies of heaven, and second, the armies who are following false gods, star gods, gods of your making. It says of this guy that he will promote himself as an equal with the commander of God's armies. He's going to actually say, I'm on a par with God. We're told that sacrifice to God will be halted and that the sanctuary will be trashed and repurposed, which refers to the temple. It says that some from Israel will be complicit in his advance. Uh, it says truth isn't going to matter. Getting what he wants matters. The truth doesn't matter. And we're informed that there will be 1,150 days until restoration of the temple and associated practice. You're going, okay. <laughs> Gabriel's insights actually match what happened in history and I'm going to walk you through that okay so for example he says when the transgressors have finished and basically in his reign is when the transgression climaxed and is dealt with in fact if you were to read for example the books of first and second Maccabees which are not scripture but they are historical accounts you can read all about it it says he was insolent and skilled in intrigue. What do we know about Antiochus? He was the fourth in line for the throne, but he maneuvered so adeptly that he became the ruler and secured the throne. It says he's mighty, but not by his power. He was very successful, but not because of military might, but because he's a sneaker. <laughs> he was so capable through sneakery not because he had tremendous power it says that he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and he expanded his empire from Syria into Egypt he was ordered to leave by Rome to leave Egypt and so he decided I'm going to make Israel my buffer zone and I'm going to make it into basically a, a Greek colony it says in uh, verse 25, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart. Uh, Antiochus succeeded through guile, even to a point of compromising many in his domain without the use of force, including many Jews who cooperated with him. It says he will magnify himself in his heart. His self-assessment was exceedingly positive. It says of him, he will destroy many while they are at ease. And the word destroy can actually be translated corrupt. Here's a passage where that is actually the translation that the uh, translators have used. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's the same word. So when it says he will destroy many while they're at ease, it could be destroy slash corrupt. Many are going to be compromised or destroyed in a time of ease. Here's a quote from uh, P.R. House. By 169-168 B.C., he had convinced many Jews in Jerusalem to accept Greek ways. He had gained control of their high priesthood, had taken money from the temple treasury to help finance his wars in Egypt. But in 167, when Rome said, no more Egypt for you, he decided, and maybe there was a bit of, I'm going to take it out on Israel, the tide turned. And Antiochus decided, I'm going to make Israel into a Hellenistic buffer, a Greek buffer zone against Egypt. I am going to erase Israel, and I'm going to get rid of everything, including their God, and replace him with me. It says he will oppose the prince of princes. Antiochus does not see himself as accountable to the Lord, he considers himself to be God. Now, he's actually Antiochus IV, but he gave himself another title. He said, I am Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you know what Epiphanes means? The manifest God. There is, I am Antiochus the God. In 167 BC, he makes worship of God illegal. For example, for us to come to church, if we were in that era, all of us would be killed for doing this. He sets up an idol of Zeus and himself in the temple. So he would take the cross, he would take the communion table, he would shatter them, and he would put up a big statue of himself. He would command that sacrifices be offered there to Zeus and himself. I'm going to read you a section from Maccabees, which, again, is not scripture, but it is a historical account of what happened during this era, just because I want you to understand who we're dealing with. I want you to imagine yourself, if you were living in such a time, what would you do? So anyway, I'm going to read from chapter 1 of 1 Maccabees, uh, verses 54 through 64. Now the 15th day of the month Kozlu in the 145th year, and they're using a different timing than we are. This is the 145th year of the Greek Empire, the one that had been started with Alexander. They set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar, and they built idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side and burnt incense at the doors of their houses and in the streets. And when they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. So basically what this is saying is on every street corner, there is a location where Zeus and Antiochus are worshipped. If you happen to have Bibles, they will be burned. And whoever was found with any of the book of the Testament... Or if any committed to the law, the king's commandment was that they, should be, that they should put him to death. If you've got a Bible, 
we're going to take you out to the firing squad. Thus did they by their authority upon the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the cities. Now the five and twentieth day of the month they did sacrifice upon the idol altar and they actually used pig's flesh which was upon the altar of God. At which time according to the commandment they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised and they hanged the infants about their necks and rifled through houses and slew them that had circumcised them. Can you imagine this? Howbeit many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing. Apparently there were some who said, I don't care. Wherefore they chose rather to die that they might not be defiled with meats, that they might not profane the holy covenant. So then they died. And there was very great wrath upon Israel. This period that is the last king of Greece, who's Antiochus IV, I will not say his name as he once it said, because he is no God. But at the end of Greece with Antiochus IV, it has come down to this. This political leader in his mind thinks I'm better than God and anybody who aligns himself with God I'm going to deal with them Gabriel says he will be broken without human agency on an expedition to Babylon Antiochus died suddenly from a nervous disorder in other words he didn't die in conflict It's just as if his life was taken. Antiochus set up a pagan altar on Kislev 25, 168 BC. The sacrifices were actually re-begun on Kislev 25, 165 BC, approximately 1,150 days later. And God did something amazing. Now, I can't get into it all, but it will come out in some other sermons to understand something of what happened here. But basically what God has done is he said, Gabriel, tell him about empires two and three. And Gabriel tells him about two and three and focuses in on the last of the Seleucid line, which was an incredibly dark period in the life of Israel. By the way, Hanukkah, if you look into the history of that it's based on something God did during this particular deliverance so then in verse 27 Daniel's kind of in recovery mode participating in the vision and Gabriel's presentation were just draining he was instructed keep the vision secret now in our language that sounds like you know hide it away which there's some truth to that, but basically he's meaning protect it like treasure, like something valuable. Don't let this be taken away. It is profoundly important that this be preserved. That's what he's saying. By the way, because Daniel obeyed that, this vision is accessible to us because it has some value for us 
I haven't told you about yet. Daniel would not be able to see what we do because we can make the historical connections. You know, Daniel was told about this bizarre leader. And we can look back in history and we can say, check, 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 check. We know who he is. And we know that he got to a point that pushed God's button of indignation. And he died with no human intervention, just was taken. And Israel was restored and delivered. So let's try and figure out, all right, how does this relate to me? How does this connect to me? In chapter 7, Daniel is alarmed greatly by a vision of a super horn that is going to declare all-out war against God's people and is actually winning. The super horn is going to basically take on God and is his animosity towards God is going to also be directed toward his people. And that is coming. It hasn't happened yet. Still future. The rampage of the super horn will conclude when the Ancient of Days intervenes and delivers a verdict in favor of the saints and gives to them the kingdom. That's coming. But in chapter 8, Daniel sees a small horn that grows great, that's the exact quote, that's at the end of the age of Greek supremacy. He's going to destroy saints and oppose the Lord. That's past history. That happened in the past. He took on God and he lost. The rampage of this upstart was broken without human agency when God's indignation climaxed. So here's, if you haven't heard anything, if you've gotten kind of lost in all this, the detail here, here's your one thing to hang on to. Get this. If God can come through for his people in such a moment in history, he can do no less for us. God came through for Israel. God dealt with this man and those who have compromised with him. And God delivered his people. If Antiochus had been left to do what he was doing, he would have extinguished Israel. But God said, enough. That is the same God who is perfectly capable of protecting you and me no matter what the world decides to throw at us. God has your back. And when you're on the receiving end of animosity toward God, you can recognize that God will intervene when the time is right. Now, God takes no pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. He will hold. But when it is time, God will intervene. The season of Antiochus IV, and I will not call him Epiphanes, gives us a glimpse of our future. Israel was called to see and draw encouragement from knowing the end, and so are we. Our world is breaking. It is not yet totally broken, but it's getting there. 
It's very easy in this moment. I've talked to a lot of people whose anxious quotient is going up, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm not apart from that myself. When anxiety threatens to seize your heart, you have to tell yourself, God has got my back. He had Israel's back. He's got my back. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. What happened to Antiochus is proof God's got the back of his people and he's got yours. Nothing the world or Satan throws at you can change the fact that you are loved by God. And he has got a great plan for your future. Daniel 8 authenticates the promise of Daniel 7. When the super horn is doing his thing, and every moment of tribulation leading up to that, God's got our back. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will we not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who even now intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what was predicted in Daniel chapter 8 and what played out exactly is proof God's got your back. And I don't care what the world throws at us. God's got our back. I want to add one more application point. You know, we need to remember God's got our back. God's got my back. God sees what's going on. But then you also need to see something. So this one's look. The book of Revelation repeats a particular command ten times. It's actually just this word, idu, it's behold, see this. And it tells us, you need to see this, church. Well, I won't go through all ten of them, but I'll give you three, all right? Because your ability to deal with the world and what is coming and the ways in which God is not just being ignored but is being opposed depend on you being able to see 
what I'm going to tell you. And it's not me telling you. It's really just what the word says. All right, here's the first one. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. There is a moment coming when Jesus Christ will come and every eye will see him. By the way, that's not just living. That's dead. I may be dead when Jesus returns, but I'm going to see him because he's going to bring me with him. Will you too? What he's telling me to do is, Jim, you need to close your eyes and not see this world and all the junk. You need to see me coming. You need to see my son coming. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You've got to see this. God is going to dwell with you and you with him. That is your future. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, see this, church. I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. In a world that's becoming ever more distant, even defiant of God, you have got to see this. Those who see him are going to shine like lights in a dark world. You know, Elisha had a servant who needed to behold. So Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Because all he saw is we're surrounded. And God opened his eyes, opened the eyes of the servant, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of the horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I don't care what the world is doing, what it throws at us, the ways in which it is hostile to those who would dare to believe that there is a thing called holiness and we are committed to it. I see Jesus coming in the clouds and I will dwell with God and in his presence and he will give to every man the reward that is due him. In the name of Jesus, that is your future. Now, some in this room may say, well, <laughs> I don't know if Jesus has got my back because, well, I don't really even know him. Then you come talk to me after the service and let me introduce you to Jesus because if he is yours, you are his. He's got your back. See him coming. Daniel 8 is proof. He will come through when the moment of indignation is arrived. And he's got your back. Let's pray. Father, there are parts of our planet where it is profoundly costly to name the name of Jesus. That hasn't been true for us as much here, but we are moving in that direction. Father, I am pleading for this people in this room. I am pleading for them to be those who see you coming and who know you've got their back and who will remain true to you in all things. They will be bold. They will be courageous. They will be ambassadors of grace in a world that doesn't know what grace is. 
I'm pleading for your people to be your people, faithful, stalwart, sold out to God for the rest of our days if you will supply what we lack. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior and our protector. Amen.